All right. Um, so we've been doing this series um, actually for a long time. This is the longest series. We've got one more week of it. Um, I've really enjoyed it. We've just been digging into the life of Jesus. So we started it right after Memorial Day, and we're ending it right after Labor Day. And so throughout the series, we've kind of broken it into little chunks, into different chunks. And we've talked about a lot of things, but a couple weeks ago, we started this chunk on prayer. And so we've been looking at the prayers of Jesus. And so two weeks ago and last week, we really dug into what we call the Lord's Prayer. And so that's in Matthew chapter 6. You don't have to flip there. I just want to give you a, a little bit of a recap. That's in Matthew chapter chapter 6, and we kind of dug in word by word, really. I, I said last week, I said, I hope I ruin for you the way that you say the Lord's Prayer from now on. Like, I hope we can't fly through it anymore, but we have to slow down, because I don't think that's how Jesus, why he gave it to us. So it's like this, this rote thing that we memorize and just recite together. I don't think that's why he gave it to us. And so I don't think that that's how we should pray it. And so we kind of dug in and looked at a lot of the different words in the prayer and what they meant and talked about what it looks like for us to pray those out to the Lord. And we said that what he gives us here, what Jesus gives us here, is really an outline for our prayers or, or a, a template for our prayers. And he gives us lots of flexibility in saying them, lots of freedom in saying them. And so we, let me back up for a second. We, we talked about like what is prayer? And in my mind, I think really simply, like we can make prayer out to be something it's not. We can make it out to be something really, really complicated. Prayer in, his, in its essence is just my personal conversation with God. Your prayer is your personal conversation with God. It doesn't, it's not about I have to say the right words. I have to say them the right way. I have to say them a certain number of times or with perfect eloquence or something like that in order for God to hear me. It's not true. That's it, not what prayer is. It's just me pouring out my heart with authenticity to God. That's what prayer is. And so we've been challenging each other um, throughout the last couple weeks, especially to make prayer a bigger priority in our lives. I know for some of us that it's a, it's a very natural part of the rhythm of our day, the rhythm of our week. But we said, what if we as a group, as a congregation said, man, we are going to put a priority on prayer, each of us individually in our lives, and said, I use the, the uh, time period of 15 minutes. Like, what if we just took 15 minutes a day? And there's nothing magical about 15 minutes other than it takes a little time for us to like decompress, you know, like when we actually stop and, and start to pray and spend time with the Lord, we got all this stuff swirling around our head and to like slow down and quiet our minds and quiet our hearts takes a little time. And so he said, man, what would it look like for us to make that a priority? And so for some of us, like, that's very natural. We're already doing that. And then maybe for others of us, that hasn't been part of our rhythm. And so I want to challenge us again this week. We're going to talk about prayer again this week and next week. And I want to continue to lay down that challenge. Like, make it a priority in your day. 15 minutes. I was thinking, like, what, what are reasons we don't do that? You know, like what are reasons that we don't spend a whole lot of time in prayer? And, and you know, uh, there's probably two that I hear a, a little bit more than others. One is, you know, things are going pretty good right now. Like I, I'm doing all right. Like I got, I got stuff covered, you know, there's no major things going wrong in my life. Like why would I even bother God? You know, why would I, why would I take up his time with my prayers? And there's this kind of idea uh, that's like self-confidence that we have before, which actually is not what God wants from us. That's a very American thing. You know, I'm independent. I'm self-confident, right? God actually wants dependence on us. Self-confidence is not a good thing. I, I stumbled across this quote from uh, a guy some, some of us may have heard of. It's a guy named John Piper, just a, a great pastor, writer. 
He's talking about prayer, and he says, prayer is the antidote for the disease of self-confidence. I like that. Prayer is the antidote for the disease of self. He, he calls it a disease, right? Like very much we can, we can posture our lives that way, and that's not what God wants for us. He wants dependence. Sometimes we're woken up to the fact that we're really not in control. You know, when, when something terrible happens, we get a disease or we lose our job or, or somebody that we care for dies, right? The second thing I hear a lot of times when, when we talk about prayer is, they go, I'm too busy to pray. Like, I got, I got so, you don't understand, man. I wake up early in the morning and I am like going, going, going until late at night. And then by that point, I've tried to pray. I fall asleep every time, right? And it reminded me, and I get it, like, I get it. But it reminded me um, of uh, a quote from a guy named Martin Luther. You guys know that name, Martin Luther? Not Martin Luther King, but the guy that he was named after, Martin Luther, a, a monk in the late 15th, early 16th century, the guy that, that really started the Reformation, the reforming of the, of the Christian church back then. And, you know, this dude was a busy, busy guy. I mean, he wrote, I, I wrote down some of this stuff, he wrote extensively papers, theses, catechisms, hymns, he translated the scriptures, he spoke often, he taught regularly, he had a wife, like busy guy, right? And, and one of my favorite quotes of his is, he's just kind of a, a very direct, blunt guy, and he said, I have so much to do today that I'm going to need to spend three hours in prayer in order to be able to get it all done. And I think that is so counterintuitive, maybe, to how we naturally think, right? Like, we put prayer on the back burner, and we're like, I got so much to do today, I don't know if I'm going to have time to pray. His perspective is so, it's like exactly the opposite. I got so much to do today, I need to spend time in prayer, more time in prayer, so that I'm able to do all the stuff that God wants me to do. See, Luther knew, along with so many others over the last 2,000 years, that in the life of a Christian, in the life of somebody that says, I said yes to Jesus, I want to follow Jesus, prayer is absolutely crucial. It's absolutely crucial. And if I want to get to know God better, prayer is absolutely crucial. Someone once said, I couldn't, I couldn't uh, figure out who it was to attribute this to, but this is not original to me. But they said, I thought this was very insightful. They said, if you want a close relationship with Jesus, you can have it, but you must cultivate that relation th relationship through uh, conversation. I think, you know, sometimes we can look at God and we can be like, man, he's an enigma. Like, yes, I want a close relationship with God, but I don't know how to get it. I feel like I reach out to him and he's nowhere to be found. And I love this because it's true. Like, if we want a close relationship with Jesus, it's not complicated. We just actually have to spend time with him, right? We have to cultivate that relationship through conversation. So anyways, we've, we've spent the last couple weeks looking at the Lord's Prayer, and we said this is a structure for us, a lot of flexibility, right? Lots of freedom with that. But that's not the only time that Jesus prayed in the Bible. We actually have lots of other different times that are, that are captured right here that are, are Jesus' prayers. And so I want to look at two of those other times over the next couple weeks. And the one that I want to look at today is actually the hardest time that Jesus had in his life. And it's the end of his life. And I want to look at his prayers amidst his pain and amidst his suffering. I want to look at his prayers amidst his pain and suffering. Because, of course, we experience this too. Right? Like if, 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 if we've been alive more than two hours, <laughs> we experience pain and suffering. Like that is a part of our life. And so I want to spend time thinking, uh, looking at how Jesus prayed during his pain and suffering 
and then talking about what that looks like for us, you know, when, when life's a struggle, you know, when, when we find ourselves asking why, why God, and we don't have any answers to that question. You know, when, when, when we're hurting, when we're crying, like how do we pray during those times? How did Jesus pray during those times in his life? And so what I want to do, here's how I want to start this. I want to, I want to just, I think this is comprehensive. I looked pretty hard. Um, I, these are all of the prayers that Jesus prayed during the very last 24, the last part of his life that we have documented in the scriptures. And what I want to do is I want to just read these to you. I'll give you a kind of quickly a little context with them, but I want to read them to you. And, and then as we progress through this morning, I want that to just kind of simmer in your mind and simmer in your heart. Okay, so, so this, is, this first one actually is, um, is not a prayer, but I want to I read this to you because it gives us a little uh, context into what Jesus is feeling. So this is in the last 24 hours of his life. This is right before he's arrested, he's beaten, he's tortured, and killed on the cross. And so he's in the Garden of Gethsemane. Again, this isn't one of his prayers yet, but this gives us an understanding of what Jesus was feeling. So this is in Matthew 26. So just listen to this. So he's talking to his disciples and he says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. So he's got his disciples, he's in the garden. He said, I am overwhelmed. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. And then he starts to pray. He goes off and he starts to pray. And this is what he says. He says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. And it says, an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. So this is before, you know, the arrest, the beatings, torture, being killed on the cross. After he's arrested, after he's beaten, after he's hung up on the cross, his prayer is actually very simple. He says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. And, and as he hangs there, suffering, like in deep suffering, alone, he cries out to God, and he says, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So he's hanging there. He asks God to forgive and then he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then finally he dies. And it says this, it says it was about noon and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon for the sun stopped shining and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he said this, he breathed his last. Guys, here's what I know. Uh, some of us in here right now are going through hard stuff. Uh, it was interesting to me. It was actually surprising to me how many people last night after service came up to me and they're like, yeah, I'm in the middle of it. Like, I needed, I needed to hear that. And I'm like, I didn't even, I didn't even, like, I, I generally know kind of, you know, where people are at at some level. And I'm like, I didn't even know, you know. I know this. Some of us sitting in here this morning, like, you're in the, in the thick of it right now. You're in the middle of pain and suffering. And if you're not, I know this, I hate to say it, but I know this, you will be. Like, at some point, it's coming for each of us. 
But here's the thing. Jesus knows exactly how we feel. Like he understands pain. He understands betrayal. He understands deception, hate, ignorance, evil, all of those things. And how he dealt with those things, which is what we're going to look at today, and how he prayed through those things, I think can give us a lot of understanding, a lot of perspective, and a lot of hope as you and I deal with those hard times in our lives too. So I, w- I want to kind of warn you, um, this is not like a fun, light, easy topic this morning uh, that we're digging into, but I think it's a very important topic for us to dig into because if we're not in the thick of it right now, we will be at some point. So why don't we do this? Do me a favor, grab a Bible if you would, and let's flip it open. I'd love for you to see some of this stuff firsthand here. So flip it open to actually two places. So one is Matthew 26. We're going to spend most of our time at the end of Matthew. Actually, all of these verses that we looked at, there's uh, parallel passages in other Gospels, but we're just going to spend our time in in two of the chapters, or actually two of the books. Matthew 26, and then keep one finger there and go two books to the right and go to Luke 22. So so let me give you some context here, and then what I want to do with our time is I want to look at each of these prayers that Jesus prayed right at the end his pain and suffering at the end of his life I want to look at them in more detail and then I want to pull out from each of them something that you and I can take with us today as we walk out of here so that we're ready if you if you sit here this morning and you're in the middle of it I hope it will help us immediately if you're not I hope we file it in the back of our brain so that when times get hard we can remember we can pull this out so, so again, this is the very end of Jesus' life. All, all the stuff that we've talked about in this series up to this point has already happened. Everything has happened except when we talked about the prophecies about the end of his life, about, about the death of the Messiah. Everything else, prophecies about the birth of his life, prophecies about the life of the Messiah himself, uh, things, uh, uh, the miracles that he did, the teachings, you know, the parables that he taught, all of that stuff has already happened up to this point. So we're in the last 24 hours of Jesus' life and the tension with the religious leaders, you know, whose entire lives and practice of their faith, Jesus has called into question, the tensions with them is at a peak, right? It's at a head. And so the end is near and Jesus knows it's not a secret to him. He knows the end is near. Now, just how many of the specifics of how everything's going to happen, we don't know. I, I don't know. But he knew that this was the end, and he knew that he was in store for a very, very unpleasant night. And so Jesus is sitting here in deep, deep anguish. Like, I want you to feel that. And, and as I think about why, like, what caused him such pain? Like, what caused him such anguish? Well, you think about the physical pain that he's going to experience, right? And I think about that, like the, the Romans were known for their brutality. And so Jesus, I'm sure, must have had an idea at some level of what was going to come to him. But as I think about that and, you know, the anguish that he felt, I, I actually don't think most of that anguish was from the, like, worrying about the physical. Because the physical pain comes, the physical pain goes, right? Like, it was going to be awful. It was going to be terrible. But I actually think that that was kind of a minor thing to him. Think about this. He seemed to know that one of his good friends, Judas, was going to betray him, right? He seemed to know that his other friends, Peter and the others, were going to abandon him in his time of greatest need. Like, imagine the pain that comes from uh, these people that you have, like, you love dearly. You have invested your life in, 
and in your time of greatest need, they abandon you and they betray you. Like imagine being betrayed and abandoned by your friends, by your family, when you absolutely need them most, right? I guess this is what Jesus is feeling. He would have known that he was gonna be leaving all of these people that he dearly loved, right? Like he was gonna be physically separated from them. Not spiritually separated, but he was gonna be physically separated from them. And so their relationship was gonna be different. And he knew that when his life ended, they were gonna be hurting and they were gonna be confused. And he knew that separation from his father was coming. So think about that. God the Son has always been, had always been in perfect relationship with God the Father, right? His entire life, he had unencumbered perfect relationship with him, with his daddy. And now, in his last 24 hours of his life, he was going to the cross, why? To take all of our sin on himself, right? He had never done anything wrong. He never had a broken relationship. Sin severs relationship with the Father, should remember that. That's what sin does. It severs our relationship with the Father. Jesus had never experienced that because he didn't have sin. He had perfect relationship with the Father, and yet he knew that he was going to die for us so that our sins would be paid for, we'd be put on him. And so imagine the feel, the anticipation of going, I've had, like, I know my Father, and all of a sudden that's going to be severed. That's going to be very, very different. And so now Jesus is sitting in one of his favorite places in a garden to pray. And again, just so we kind of understand a little bit more of what he's feeling, I want to I start with Matthew, that Matthew 26 passage again. And so he's with his disciples. He had just had a last meal. It's called the Last Supper. He just had this last meal with them. And he pulls three guys aside, his three closest friends, Peter, James, and John. James and John were brothers. He pulls these three guys aside that he's closest to in the world, and this is what he says to them. He says, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. And he says to them, stay here and keep watch with me. And, and so I was digging in this week to, to that word. Um, oh, we translate it as three words, overwhelmed with sorrow. In the original language, it's one word. And I was just reading a little bit more about like what that means. This is what Jesus was feeling. And it means like absolute distressed like deep, deep grieving. One of the translations, I thought this, was, this created a, a, a great picture in my mind of what Jesus was feeling. One of the translations said, described it as to melt away. And so it was like Jesus saying, my soul is melting away to the point of death, just melting with grief and sorrow. Let me ask you, you ever feel that way in your own life? Like you ever have an experience, a point in your life where you feel like you are just melting away with grief and sorrow. Like you are hurting so badly. I've had this. You're hurting so badly that like you can't see straight. You know that everything in your life is going to be different from that point on. That's, that's how Jesus was feeling. Just deep anguish, melting away with grief and sorrow. And, and it's very enlightening to me that in those moments, in that moment, Jesus didn't want to be alone. Did you, did you catch that? If you know the story, it's easy to miss this part of the story. It's easy to get lost in the story because of what the disciples do, or actually what the disciples don't do. Jesus tells the disciples to do what? To watch. Keep watch. I'm going to go pray. Keep watch. You remember what they did? They fall asleep. Not once, 
not twice, but three times. Jesus is hurting so badly. He says, keep watch. He goes off to pray. I want you guys here. He comes back. They're asleep. What are you doing? Wake up. They wake up. He goes to pray. He comes back. They're asleep. Does it a third time, right? You think to yourself, like, I, I don't know, I read that and I think, like, what is wrong with these people? But don't miss that as Jesus' point, as Jesus' soul is overwhelmed with sorrow, he doesn't want to be alone. He wants his friends there. Like, he, he could choose. In fact, it would have been safer for them if Jesus was arrested and no one else was around, right? And yet he wanted his friends with him. And as I think about that, I think there's probably something that you and I can learn there. You know, we say we share life together. I talked about grace groups a little bit ago. You know, I got, that, is, that is an important part of you and I living as followers of Jesus. We can't do it alone. We can't do it well alone. Like even God the Son needed other people, right? And this is part of the reason why when we're experiencing pain and suffering, it is so helpful to have other people around. And if you're like me, you can go, yeah, well, when I'm, when I'm hurting that way, I actually want to be alone. I don't want anybody around. I don't want other people to see me that way or whatever it is. That's a bunch of baloney. <laughs> like, that's pride. That's ego, right? The Bible talks about, in uh, Galatians 6, 2, talks about carrying each other's burdens. I don't know if you've ever experienced that, like when you're hurting and you have other people in your life that actually love you and they're around, and they help carry your burdens. Like, they can't solve it. They can't make the problem go away or become all better, but there's something about, for us, having other people around that care for us when we're in our grief, when we're hurting, that makes all the difference. And Jesus knew that, right? Jesus knew that, and so he wanted his friends with him, which is an important thing for me to remember when I'm hurting, when I'm struggling, when I'm suffering, not to isolate myself in my pain. So, so Jesus goes off, right? So he's feeling, you know, this, this deep, deep sorrow. He's got his friends around him, right? And he goes off into the garden to pray. And so he tells his disciples, keep watch. Later he tells them to pray as well. And then this is what Jesus prays. This is the content of his prayer. He says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. And it says, an angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. And, and I included those, those second two verses there. 42 is the prayer, right? 43 and 44, again, I just like want us to see the context of what Jesus is feeling, the distress that he's feeling, you know? And so he's praying to God, and God in his compassion, the Father in his compassion, sends an angel to strengthen him right? And it says he's praying with such intensity that his sweat is like drops of blood. Or another translation is he actually sweats drops of blood, which sounds bizarre, but it's actually a real thing. Like our human body does that when we're in like dire distress, it can do that. And so I wanted you to see Jesus' anguish, but even more than that, I want you to see in this passage his honesty in his prayer. Like as he's hurting, as he's struggling, He's so honest with the Father. Like, clearly, Jesus does not want to go through this, right? He, he does not want to go through this. He wants the pain to stop. And so he told his Father, he told his Daddy, exactly how he was feeling. Jesus Christ, God the Son, 
laying out his pain before his father with complete and utter honesty. That's powerful, guys. In his pain, in his suffering, he was also honest with God. And what he asked was God would deliver him from his pain, right? God, if you could, if you could take this away from me, if you could take this cup away from me, please do. And guys, I look at that and I think there's probably something we can learn there, right? Like when we're experiencing pain, when we're experiencing suffering, I was talking to somebody last night and they were, they were just kind of wrestling with this. And they're like, does it mean because I'm scared or because I have fear with something, like does it mean that I don't have like strong enough faith and is God disappointed with me in that? And I'm like, I don't think so. I think God understands, like, if my son or my daughter comes to me in pain and they're struggling and they're afraid of something, I don't get angry at them. I love them. I wrap my arms around them. And I actually want them to be honest with me in their pain, right? In their fear, in their struggle. And I think God wants that as well. And we can be honest before him because we're secure before him, Right? Like if, I, if, if I'm with somebody that is like a safe person that I know they're not going to judge me, I can like lay out my soul before them, right? Like I know my wife, Marsha, is not sitting in judgment of me. Like I can be, I can lay it all out right there in front of her because I know I'm secure with her. And it's the same thing with God the Father. He's our Father. Like we're secure with him. We can be honest with him in our pain. That is always appropriate. But... I also don't want us to miss the second part of what Jesus prayed here. Father, if you could take this cup from me, please do. But then he says, yet not my will, but yours be done. What's, what's Jesus acknowledging here? I think he's acknowledging that our perspective is limited. Even Jesus's perspective, God the Son, was limited and the Father's isn't. Our plans can be so narrow, but the plans of the Father are so much bigger. Our wisdom can be so limited, but the wisdom of the Father is so expansive. Even, even our troubles, I, I, I almost hate to say this because I feel like it makes light of this, and yet this is what the Bible says. Our troubles are described as light and momentary. Like even the, the most rotten stuff that we feel that we go through is described as light and momentary compared to the surpassing greatness of what's to come, right? And if Jesus, God the Son, knew that and submitted to the Father's authority, man, shouldn't we? Like, it's always appropriate for us to be honest before him. Like, we can lay our heart out to the Father in, in complete transparency, complete honesty, as long as we also ultimately yield to the Lord's will and not our own, right? Like I can be honest before him, but in the end I step back and I go, but I trust you, daddy. I, I trust you. I trust that you see things that are much bigger than what I see. We're, we're gonna come back. We're gonna circle around to that at the end. I, I, I keep reading, I keep watching videos and reading articles about all of this stuff that happened a couple weeks ago in, uh, in Charlottesville. And uh, I don't know how you wrestle with all of that, but I can't wrap my mind around it. Like, I can't understand the, the hatred and the violence and the racism. And I, I, I just, it makes me want, uh, at the same time, it makes me want to throw up 
it makes me want to cry, and it makes me want to fight. Like all of those emotions, like just raw together, and I don't get it, and it just is like so distressing to me. And so I've been reading all this stuff and watching these, these videos on it, and I came across this article, and the headline caught my eye. The headline was this, I learned the hard way how to stop hate. I learned the hard way how to stop hate. And I was like, hmm, I wonder what that's about. And so it's, a, it's an article about uh, this guy's name's Arno Michaelis. I'd never heard of him before. Arno Michaelis. He was a former white power activist, so kind of like a, a, a skinhead, a white elitist. And so he would have identified with what we now call the alt-right, right? So this is the group of people that went into Charlottesville to, uh, to protest tearing down this statue, right? This kind of collect, they're collecting together now. He would have, they didn't call it that back then, but that's the group that he would have identified with. And so it's just like this article's talking about his story, and some of the things that he said were just fascinating to me and what changed him like what moved him from extreme hate to actually love and compassion and so I'll give you a couple quotes he said as ridiculous as it may sound I had myself convinced that white people were oppressed and that there was a centuries-old Jewish conspiracy to exterminate us you know now he's like it's ridiculous but that I was convinced that that stuff's true and so it caused him to hate like he hated anybody that was different from him, you know, and he was violent with them too. Like not just hate, but he was, but he hurt people. And so, you know, Jews, LGBT folks, blacks, Latinos, you name it, anybody that's different from him. This was his life between 1987 and 1994, seven years of his life. This is what he did. But it was fascinating to hear what changed him. Uh, what like drew him out of that lifestyle. So there was, there was really two events almost 20 years apart that were like these, these huge things that were this turnaround for him to be where he is today. And, and the, the first one was this. I'll just, I'll just read to you another quote. He said, being on the receiving end of violence never made me any less violent or filled with hate. So in the article he talked about he would, he would hurt people and then there would be other times that people would hurt him back right? And he's saying, being on the receiving end of violence never did anything to change me. I was continuing to be filled with hate. What changed the course of my life was the profound courage extended to me by those that I claimed to hate. Their kindness, their forgiveness, compassion, that destroyed the narrative of oppression. Man, you think about that. Like that, these people that he was hating, they responded to him with kindness, with forgiveness, and with compassion. And that, was ch that changed him, that drew him out, right? And so then almost 20 years later, he went on to tell a story how in, uh, in 2012, I actually remember this happening, in 2012 in Wisconsin, some white power, he described him as a man like the one that I used to be, went into a Sikh temple with a gun and just started shooting people, just started killing people. And so this guy was from this uh, white power skinhead group that the other guy, Arno, had actually been a part of starting years earlier. And now, whatever it is, 20 years later, this guy, another guy from that group that he helped start, goes into this Sikh temple and just starts annihilating people. And so six people were murdered. Another uh, elderly holy man was left in a coma. And so, you know, this guy Arno sees this stuff and he says what, what really struck him was the way that the Sikhs responded to the violence. 
So after some of their loved ones, people like their family, literally were murdered right before their very eyes, they responded with love and they responded with forgiveness. It really in defiance of the hate and the violence that was like laid out on top of them. And this guy Arno said, man, that really spoke to me. He goes on, he said, human kinship can really dispel the fear and ignorance fueling the narrative of all violent extremism, white supremacist and otherwise. He said, telling people they're wrong rarely gets through. Demonstration of what's right reached me. And it can make all the difference in the lives of those who are currently consumed by hate. And so I read this, guys, and I'll be honest with you, I have, I have mixed feelings as I read this because as much as I absolutely respect, I feel terrible for what happened to these, to these Sikhs. Like that sort of thing could happen in our church at any time as well, right? As terrible as you feel and how much I respect the way that they responded with love and care and all of those things. I think if there's any group of people on the planet, especially any religious group of people on the planet that should be known for love and forgiveness, it should be Christians, right? I mean, it should be us. So I look at them, I'm like, wow, look at what they did. Look at the, the love and forgiveness they showed. And then it makes me a little jealous because I go, man, look at us. Look at how much, there's no other group of people on the planet that have been forgiven of more than you and me, right? There's no other group of people. And yet so many of us, so many Christians, not, don't just think locally, but around the world, simply cannot forgive when we're wronged. And when we're wronged, instead of showing love and forgiveness and kindness and compassion, instead we want to show hate and we want to show unforgiveness and we want to be bitter about those things. Look, look, go back to our prayer. Look at, look at the next prayer that Jesus prayed. I want, I, I want this to sink in with us. He's hanging on the cross that hate-filled people had put him on for no wrong that he had done. And this is what he prays. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. How does he respond? Forgiveness, grace, mercy, kindness for the people that are literally taking his life even though he had done no wrong. And guys, listen, I realize we talked about forgiveness last week as well and now we're talking about forgiveness too. I gotta say, like, if, if, if we're Christians and we mean it, like, I don't, I'm not, I, don't, I don't just call myself a Christian because my family goes to church and I just grew up that way. Or I, I just call myself a Christian because I go to church. If, if you've said yes to Jesus and you identify with Jesus, man, we got to be like him. We've got to be forgiving people too. We got to be people that exhibit when we're hurt, when we're persecuted, when people hate us, we don't respond with hate back but with compassion and kindness and forgiveness. It's interesting. If you go back to what we talked about last week, remember we looked at the Lord's Prayer last week, and you remember the part of the Lord's Prayer, so this is, the, this is, Jesus says, this is how you should pray. One of the things that he says we should pray is all about forgiveness, right? And so as Jesus is in the middle of pain and suffering, people doing terrible things to him, he does exactly what he tells us to do. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Right. Guys, if you didn't get enough time last week to spend thinking about forgiveness, I really challenge you, I really encourage you 
to, to meditate on, to think through, to like slow down and think about Jesus' response to the people that are killing him, how he forgives and like the difference that that should make in our lives, how that should speak into our forgiveness of others. I challenge you to think about that this week. All right, so I know my, my time's short here. That clock, the clock's always against me. So I gotta be quick here, but I, so let me, let me just kind of quickly look at the next thing. I'll be quick with it. I'll give you a little homework and it leads into the last thing that Jesus says. So as Jesus is hanging on the cross, he says in Matthew 27, he says, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as I think about that, I don't know what, how, like, how you wrestle with that uh, or how you understand that in your mind. As I think about that, um, my first impression is Jesus feels absolutely alone. Like in that moment, he's hanging, he's just, he just prayed for forgiveness. And now he's saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And if you read what theologians comment, what they think about this passage, they, they a lot think that like maybe this is the moment that God places our sins on Jesus. So he goes to the cross to die for us. Perhaps this is the moment where Jesus feels the weight of my sin and your sin. And all of a sudden his relationship with the Father is severed, right? And he's like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And of course, guys, sometimes we can feel that way too. We can look up at God and go, my God, my God, I have been crying out to you, asking you for this, this, and this. Where are you? Why have you forsaken me? Why do I feel all alone? Here's my homework to you. These words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, aren't just like um, the words that Jesus was feeling at the moment. They actually are the, also the beginning of a psalm back in the Old Testament. Psalm with a P, P-S-A-L-M, right? Psalm 22. Psalm 22 starts out with those exact words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so they start, it starts off with the psalm writers just feeling of alone and desperation, right? Honest feelings of desperation, abandoned by God, forsaken by God, but how it ends, and this is so telling, this is so telling. It gives us a deeper understanding of what Jesus was feeling in those moments. He's feeling abandonment and being alone, right? But in the end, the psalm ends with the psalmist having deep trust, deep faith in God, deep trust in God's goodness and God's plan, even when he can't see it. It's actually beautiful. So my homework for you is to read it. Like go, go read that this week, Psalm 22. And ask God to give like deeper insight into what Jesus was feeling at hanging on the cross. That, that kind of leads us, that ending with trust, leads us into the final prayer that Jesus prayed right before he died on the cross. Let's read it. This is what he says. So it was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. For the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. And it says, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father... Into your hands I commit my spirit. And when he said this, he breathed his last. And so as Jesus dies, all these weird events take place, right? So it's about noon. For three hours, everything gets dark. It gets very dark. The sun stops shining. There's, there's commentators that say maybe God made it so that there was an eclipse at that exact moment. We just had an eclipse, right? A total eclipse at that exact moment. Sun stops shining. It gets dark. The curtain in the temple. So in the temple, there's different rooms in the temple. The temple is like uh, where the spirit of God resided with the Jews. 
And so there's a place called the holy place where more people could go. And there's a place called the most holy place where like the Ark of the Covenant was and where the Spirit of God resided. And they had this big thick curtain right in between them. And so what happened is another gospel describes it as the curtain was torn from top to bottom. Right? And so as Jesus died, the curtain, the veil is torn away, signifying, I think, signifying that now God is not separate from us, but like the home of God and the home of man are now connected with each other. And so these, these things happen, these strange things happen as Jesus dies. And then Jesus calls out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And so through all of the pain, through all of the suffering, through all of the betrayal, through all of the loneliness, all of these things that Jesus felt, in the end, he rests with his father, right? He was honest with everything that he felt along the way, his sadness, his grief, maybe even fear. I have a little question with that one. Maybe even fear, right? His times of, of forgiving, hanging on the cross, his times of feeling absolutely abandoned and loneliness, through it all, in the end, he trusts. In the end, he commits himself to his daddy. And it's interesting, if you go back and think about it, his prayer at the beginning, when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, is for deliverance from all of this stuff, right? He says, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. He prays that God would deliver him from the pain. That's what he wanted, right? But what happened? God didn't do that. Instead, God delivered him through all of these things, right? Why? Because it was his plan. It, it was the whole reason that Jesus came. It was the whole reason that Jesus came to this earth and ultimately to die, right? It was God's will. It was God's plan from the very beginning. And you think about that, guys, and sometimes that's true in our life as well. Sometimes we... Uh, cry out to God to deliver us from something, and he does, you know? You're like, man, I, 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 I got a, a weird test result, and I have to go back for more testing. God, please deliver me from this illness. Man, they're laying people off at work. God, please deliver me from being let go, you know? Deliver me from embarrassment, whatever it is, right? Probably more than we ever, ever recognize God delivers us from things. But guys, sometimes... God's plan, God's will for our life is to deliver us through things. Sometimes God desires us to do hard, uncomfortable things. Sometimes his will is that we walk through hard, uncomfortable things. Obviously, that was his will with his son. And we can be honest, just like Jesus, and ask God, please remove this from us. But only if in the end we go, not my will, but yours be done. Because your perspective is greater than mine. Guys, my challenge to you is when we face hard things, maybe you're in it right now, maybe it's coming, right? When we face hard things, be honest with God. Like, feel the security of being with your Father and lay your heart out before Him, right? It's okay to pray that He delivers us from. But in the end, trust him that his ways are greater than our ways that his will is sometimes different than our will and in the end we go into your hands i commit myself your ways not my ways